0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein, direct from Australia, filmmaker Sue Thompson, who is my guest today. Sue began her career working on public television in Melbourne. She subsequently wrote and directed her first documentary, Boys and Balls, an in-depth look at males and their obsessions with sports that obviously involve balls. Sue so also produced and directed Tempest at the Drop-In. It follows five theater professionals and a group of marginalized men and women, social outcasts, as it were, as they prepare to stage Shakespeare's The Tempest. And then there's The Coming Back Out Ball. This documentary follows a group of older LGBTI folks who have been invited to attend a ball celebrating their gender and sexual identity. Faced with the complexities of aging and isolation, they live each day with grit determined and humor. So let's meet and get to know this creative woman from down under. Sue, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Sandy.
0: Did you always know that you wanted to tell stories?
1: Yes, I did. I, as a young child, I used to, I was one of those children that put on plays. Oh, I hear this all the time. How uh-huh. I know. I think about that and I think, well, I remember I was eight, nine, ten, and I was always the director, and I was always getting any kid in the neighborhood, let's put on a play. It's it's just crazy. Did you boss your siblings around also? No, I'm the only girl of three children, so my brothers weren't interested. went not we are not interested. interested.
0: <laughs> so when it came time for you to go to college, and I assume you did, was filmmaking, producing, directing what you thought you would study in school?
1: Yeah, again, at school I was one of those kids. I was a bit naughty. I was a bit of a class clown. I directed plays at school, didn't do very well, managed to get into a university that happened to be quite alternative. was brilliant. I studied drama, film, Mm -hmm. but Spoke to you, huh? Yeah, absolutely. So suddenly I found my place.
0: And where did you grow up? In Melbourne?
1: I was born and grew up for my first 10 years in Adelaide, South Australia, and then we moved to Melbourne, Victoria.
0: What was that like for you, just making the move?
1: Absolutely shaped who I am today. I mean, my father has returned and lived in Adelaide after my parents separated, and... So I go back, you know, he's, my dad has now got early onset dementia, so I go back sort of every two or three months. I look at Adelaide as a small town. Mm-hmm. Melbourne's a big city. It right. has lots that sort of, I think, help shape who I am. And, How far apart are they? Um, it's an eight-hour drive. Oh, wow. So what was it like, college life? That's where you honed your skills? It thrilled me because mm. I went to an all-girls school. My father was an education expert, and he still says to this day I made a big mistake. I should have sent you to a free school, an alternative school. You clearly didn't fit Marched in. to a different jumper? I was always in the hallway. I was, I was always getting suspended. I was always having detentions. I was like, you know. What, were you a troublemaker? No, I was just having fun, and I was challenging the teachers, and oh. I was sort of chatty and noisy and... So when I went to university, none of that mattered. It, you know, people didn't judge me for being too loud, too outspoken, mm-hmm. too funny, too fat, too tall. You know, whatever. <laughs> uh-huh. Suddenly, I was like, oh, I can be who I want to be here. So I started directing plays, and the you know, whole it's thing. just
0: sort of interesting for somebody who, in a sense, was larger than life. Did you ever think that you wanted to be in front of the camera?
1: Always. So that was at university. I thought I wanted to be an actress, Okay. And I became involved in the, the called what's called in Australia the Festival of Australian Student Theatre, and I ultimately was the director of that, where all the universities in Australia come together and put on a big theatre festival. Oh wow! So I was really passionate about theatre, and um, then I th- I started direct-, I direct directed a lot of Brecht. I, I liked the whole notion of everybody can be a part of everything. So any person that auditioned for me at university, I would give them a role in the play. So I remember (laughs) the first review I got at Rabelais, which is the newspaper for the university I went to, said, had headlines on the front cover, Bertolt Brecht meets Benny Hill. So that, I remember being shocked, devastated, but at the same time I thought, well, Sue, if you're going to embrace this, if you're going to let everybody come in, that's the sort of reviews you're going to get. So yeah, for a long time, theatre was my love and I wanted to be an actress and I started doing a lot of plays and, you know, I was like a big fish in a very small sea. And then I did a play. While you're still in school? Yeah, mm-hmm. no, in university. And I just finished university. It was at a drama college in Melbourne, considered quite elite. And I got into a play and I played, it was a Greek god in Antigone or something. And anyway, at the end of the play, a friend of mine came up to me and said, oh my God, what happened to you? And I said, what do you mean? She said, that was appalling. And the moment those words came out of her mouth. As in you were terrible? I was terrible. I remember thinking, that's it. I can't do this. I'm not strong enough. I'm not brave enough. I don't have the confidence. She may be right. Uh, Whatever. Literally, as we were standing in the hallway in the foyer of this theatre night, I thought, I'm going behind the scenes.
0: But based on what we just talked about a little bit before, you sounded like you were someone who had a lot of bravado. And I don't mean that in a negative way, that you were out there and confident. Who knows? But to have one person
1: say that to you and then You tell me, Sandy. I clearly am not as strong as I think I am, you know. Interesting. Yeah. I, I literally and From that moment on, I don't think I've ever acted again. And I was doing a lot of acting in those days.
0: But then I could also probably say that you never looked back.
1: Never. It's not my thing. You know, I can see with public speaking and stuff, as I've got older, you know, I'm much better at it. But as a young woman in my 20s, I probably was so aware of who I was in the world and being judged. And because I am a big woman, I think that my bigness has, you know, in some ways it's always I've been like people laugh at me. or It you defined know, you? It some did. Level? I wouldn't say it now as an old woman, but I think as a young woman, it did.
0: absolutely <laughs> You're not an old woman. But,
1: uh, but you know, wherever I walked into a room, I was bigger than everybody. I that. Men, women, I didn't matter. I, mm-hmm. I was, you know. I've so been there
0: too. I know. Exactly I don't what you like
1: mean. being in the spotlight. So in some ways, being a director has been the greatest thing I've ever done.
0: Well, interestingly, back then, and I'm not trying to psychologize you, <laughs> you kind of took advantage of being in the spotlight. You made it work for you in a sense. I tried. You tried. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: But so you find your comfort zone behind the camera. And so you start working on public television as a
1: director, by then, I'd moved into directing theatre, and I was directing Fringe, and I was directing plays with women, and I was—I loved it, and I was very passionate. But it was really isolating, I found, and. I did this I got involved in public television the first public television broadcast in about 1988 in Melbourne Victoria it was very exciting we broadcast for 24 hours live to the public we probably had about 200 people watching us <laughs> and I walked in and suddenly I'm vision switching I'm on the camera I'm a director I'm a producer I'm a scheduler it was really exciting because you
0: were in on the ground floor I
1: loved I loved the technical side of mm-hmm. stuff I was really excited by it and the diversity of the people i was working with i was working with you know people who are in their 70s or people who are 18 and i was sort of maybe 26 it was it was wild i realized i liked the thrill and the excitement of it and i also liked the immediacy of the of the the television because we were live to air uh-huh. and i loved the fact that there were people sitting at home in the lounge room watching us do a funny late night tv show in a studio in Fitzroy in Melbourne so Something shifted in me and I thought about it for you know probably a couple of months and I really made a big right-hand turn and I started writing this documentary because I was living in a shared house. I was watching this group of men who were part of the house play backyard cricket and I think it was ludicrous. They would play for hours. They had the most <laughs> the ridiculous <laughs> rules. They would get stoned. And it was if the ball went over the roof, it was worth six. If it hit the window, if it was worth two. And it was funny and enjoyable. And yet the women didn't play. And I used to think, what is what the hell? Well, we weren't that interested. So I started writing this film based on men's obs- It was a sort of a comic idea, men's obsession with balls, uh-huh. meaning their own and balls <laughs> in sport. Okay, And I started, you know, sort of kind of... <laughs> Sort of theorising about that, I thought I, I wanted to make a film about. It. I thought I'd make a humorous documentary about men's obsession with balls. Anyway, I sent it off. I sent off a very loose script to the ABC in Melbourne never have made a film before. They came straight back and said, yes, we want to do it. And so suddenly I was involved in like the institution of television making and... Well, that gave you street cred. Well, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I was a theatre director. I didn't know, you know, everything was new. So mm-hmm. every single step on that film was new to me. And... I wanted to make a sort of feminist film <laughs> laughing at men. <laughs> suddenly I'm working with men in the ABC telling me the sort of film they want, which was a film about sport. And I, I suddenly realised I was embroiled with, you know, male patriarchy in a way I'd wow. never planned to be. Wow. But I was excited because I was getting to make a film and I had never made a film and I was being told I was going to get a budget and it was all happening and I thought... How do I do this? So uh, Boys and Balls is an adorable film. What I did, because I decided I wanted to make it humorous and I wouldn't let them take that away from me, but I had to have famous sports people. I had to have Shane Warne, which I don't know if you've heard some. No. Okay, a whole lot of Australian footballers and cricketers and tennis players (laughs) and soccer players that I didn't know because I had no interest in real sport. I just found this backyard cricket game (laughs) quite entertaining. Uh Suddenly I'm interviewing sort of well-known sports figures, completely out of my depth. But I thought, I don't care. I can ask you a question about your obsession with balls. And Mm -hmm. they quite, most of the men got the gag and they were very funny and very... um, And went along with you. Absolutely. And they opened up and gave me lots. And I had these two comedians who are well-known in Melbourne at the moment who used to make, who, who did comic commentary of sporting events called Roy and HG. And Roy and HG were sort of... Irreverent, anarchic, hilarious. So I had them sort of narrate the film. So I had this multi... I had the backyard cricket game going throughout Boys and Balls. I had Roy and HG making jokes and telling the world how foolish this obsession is with a very heartfelt, passionate, you know, tone. And then I had real sports people... So it was wacky, but it actually ultimately was quite successful. How
0: long did it take to make?
1: Um, It took about nearly a year, that one. But for me, first-timer, director, it was wonderful.
0: And how was it received?
1: Really well. That's the strange thing. It got really good reviews and, and yeah.
0: Well, then there's your but, destiny,
1: right? You uh, were meant to. Absolutely. Do that. You know, I mean, you must know this, Sandy. I did this, what was a, quite a successful film. Nobody ever heard of me again. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's the role
0: of women. Uh, but let's tackle that. So you make Boys and Balls and then. You say, what's next for me? You ask, what am I going to do? I think now? I was naive enough
1: to think that, oh, I okay, guess so another phone will ring. Yeah, oh, right. Yeah. I'm going to be just fending yeah. off all these offers. No, no. Nobody and, came And, and I can say 20 years later, it's exactly the same. I've made six films and they've all been on television and it's all done. And even only just now, my mother will probably admit that I actually am a filmmaker. To this day, it's been like, what do you do and when are you going to get a real job? You know? No kidding. Yeah. So after this film was made, did
0: you have to do a nine to five?
1: Yeah, yeah, some sort of, I would have. I can't remember what I did. I think I would, I've always worked. Usually, I've supplemented my work mm-hmm. with you know part time work in what would have been hospitality for years as a barmaid or a waitress, and then some arts organisations probably took me on to write some papers and you know I was a consultant occasionally, just anything to make some money. So was basically the next event tempest at the drop-in no no then I made two other films I used to work for the Melbourne International comedy Festival quite a bit so a friend of mine runs that Susan Proven and she very kindly invited me to direct a documentary called Class Clowns which was about young people becoming comedians and trying to take part so I would I followed six children I'm often my films are following people doing something six young teenagers, practicing to audition for Class Clowns and then do a performance at, with, in front of, you know, a thousand people. And, yeah, that was fun and great. And that was on Channel 10. Right, uh, anyway, another mm-hmm. station in mm-hmm. Australia. So
0: what was the catalyst for Tempest at the Drop-In, which sounds really fascinating?
1: friend of mine is a theatre maker... Joseph Sherman, and he said, Sue, I'm working on this project. I think you might be interested. I can't remember why. He said he must have seen something I'd done before that. Anyway, I went to a rehearsal in a small church in St Kilda in Melbourne, and this raggedy group of actors with a raggedy group of participants got together and did just a little workshop while I sat and observed. In fact, they didn't let me sit. I had to take part in the workshop. And we danced and sang and held hands. And From that moment on, I thought, okay, there's a film here. So it was about a group of, you know, well known Melbourne performers who were doing this work at a drop in centre. They were running acting workshops, but they were deciding to take it a bit further. And so they decided, let's put on a performance with people with serious mental health issues. These are not people, these are some people living on the streets, some people schizophrenic you know, psychotic, very ill people, but who would come to the drop-in centre for a cup of tea or maybe to get have a wash. you know what it's a, drop a drop-in...
0: It's drop-in... No, I don't. Okay,
1: so in Australia, a drop-in centre is a place provided by the government, often in conjunction with, like, the Uniting Church or the Salvation Army. You've heard of these people. Of course. Like, uh-huh. Big sort of philanthropic or missions people. So they're are... not homeless
0: shelters, drop-in centres, necessarily. No, you're not allowed
1: to stay the night there. That's the whole thing about the drop-in centre. They haven't got the funding for that. They're very small and modest, and they're about providing usually two or three meals a day Uh and a place to shower and shave and perhaps an art workshop or a drama workshop or you might go on a little bus and go to an event in town. Okay. But it's modest and this place only really has enough room to have, you know, about 60 people a day at the most. So they often have to turn people away. So they were doing these workshops with these actors you know, it was obvious it was a film. So that one was really interesting in the sense that I worked on that for three years. I never got any government funding, uh, which is the uh, usually the way you make a film in Melbourne. But what I did do is I raised some money th- sort of through health organisations who were also supporting what the drop-in centre were doing. And I hung out watching the workshops for about, you know, six months and then they started building up to doing a performance. But like all my films, I can't, I can't be disingenuous. I have to, I have to get to know the people. And this was what even the people doing the the actors in this said, okay, if you're going to do this, Sue, if we let you do this, you have to be in it. So the initial idea was that I had to be in the play, and I could have my camera. That somehow the camera would have become a character in well, Shakespeare's attempt. Uh-huh. As that went on, that became that everyone realized we didn't really need to do that. They trusted me more as as you gain trust people drop their sort of barriers defenses, defenses and mm-hmm. it was like maybe okay she okay she's not trying to you know sell out sell us off or whatever so i was allowed to not be in the play which wasn't really appropriate and i would you know go to people's houses or go to the homes that they were living in or pick them up and drive them to the play and the rehearsals. And the night of the, you know, once we actually got to the point where these people were performing, it we never knew whether they'd turn up. or So they've cast this play, but they don't know if, if yeah, you know. If there's going Eric, to be a cast. Yeah, if she's going to turn up that night because she's not well or she's right. sick or she hasn't taken her medication. Well. or One of the actors happened to be a doctor and there was one night actually that's, you know, there's a tiny moment in the film where he had to give one of the participants, a schizophrenic pill because he was having some sort of freak out. There was violence, there was anger, there was tears, there was drama, there was trauma. It was huge. It was absolutely massive. And the night that we opened, we got them all there. They all performed. It was a very strange experience for all of us, but the most exhilarating thing I've ever been a part of. And they did four nights. With family and friends, and there was always an audience. And they break out of character; they'd talk to someone they knew in the audience. They would, you know, slap their head. They would lie on the floor. But it was all incorporated into Shakespeare's The Tempest. It was really how fun. was this received? That was, you know, when you talk about reviews. Yeah, if you ha- we had a couple of theatre critics, well-known theatre critics, come. They slammed it, you know, because mm-hmm. they said they understood the purpose for the performance, but they didn't really think that it it perhaps was worthy of, um, you know, people coming to sit in a theatre and watch it, which I thought was unfair because there was so much more to it than what people said. But you know, hey, that's what reviewing's all about. While you were doing this particular project, did you have a full time job? Uh, no, I couldn't have. But it would be part-time jobs. Living had to be challenging. It is, it's still challenging, Sandy. It's mm-hmm. hard to pay the bills, you know. Uh-huh. It's really hard. What were the years that encompassed that? It was finished and screened on the ABC in Melbourne in 2014. Mm-hmm. So it must have been two years prior to that, three years prior to that, you know, and then they've screened at 14, 15, 16. What the ABC in, in Australia have done, you've probably got similar things here, they have a mental health week now. So my film was in the first, involved in the first year that they did that in mm-hmm. 2014. At, do you think that people, based on the topic, tended to dismiss you?
0: you? Didn't take you seriously? Why do you say
1: that? I'm interested.
0: No, because of wh- what you imparted to me. Like, what is she doing with this project?
1: No, I think people really respected what I was doing. They okay. probably thought I was a bit foolish. But I think in all the work that I've done, I think people go, oh, good on you, Sue. That's terrific. It doesn't mean that they want to join me. <laughs> people don't know the work I'm doing when I'm doing it, Sandy. So mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. tend to work in isolation a lot. I don't. I didn't feel – people. I was working on that film and the only people that knew I was doing it were people who I was working with. And then I would maybe go and serve a sandwich in a – bar or cafe, perhaps. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I
0: totally understand. But I also get the distinct impression from you that what you do, your projects, are passionate projects. Mm. That you have to, even though you might not have thought you were going to do this from the get-go, you can't just go through the motions.
1: And I won't abandon either. That's the thing. So for me to take on something, it's a big decision because I know... I will. In, I will invest one hundred and ten percent of myself of your life, which means you know abandoning my family and my children and mm-hmm. life and friends. So, yeah, it's a big deal for me to say. Once I decide on something, I give it my all. Right. Yeah. Right. And I like doing that. I think. Well, it's, it works for because you. It, 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 it's also. It's. It's. I have a life experience every time I do it. It's not jobs. It's. It's passion. It becomes who I am.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So clearly,
0: that must have happened to you with The Coming Back Out Ball. So give us the genesis of this documentary. So
1: The Coming Back Out Ball was an idea that a friend of mine, Tristan Meacham, decided to do. He read a paper by an academic in Melbourne called Catherine Barrett who wrote about older LGBTIQ plus going back into the closet when they were going into aged care to receive decent care. There was this So she had just sort of uncovered this idea that, yeah, people were going back into the closet. And it absolutely devastated Tristan. And he said, as a young gay man and as a performance artist, I want to do something about this. I want to acknowledge these people who were the pioneers for allowing, you know, a young gay man like myself to come out and live Mm -hmm. proudly. So there's an organization in England called Ducky who do similar work. And Tristan, you know, he's been around for a while so he knows a lot of stuff and he thought I could put on a ball and also referencing you know the the gay and lesbian balls that have happened probably globally but certainly were a big deal in um, Australian gay and lesbian history so he thought that would be the best thing to do put on a ball celebrate older LGBTI honour them you know, acknowledge them. Mm-hmm. Say you know what you, you we love you, we adore you. Thank you for doing what you've done because you have had so much, so much trauma. So then he invited me onto the project and said, you know, because I said, well, obviously the a documentary, he said, yes, I know. Invited me on and we basically started working together and for three years. For, for the first two, we worked solidly together, creating the ball and the film, and then. In the last year, he sort of went more in directing the ball because he had to be more hands-on and I started spending more time with individuals that we had met two years prior. So it took him 3 years to get this ball off the ground, to get Absolutely. this idea off the ground. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Well, like it's the same genre you know, for filmmaking it takes a long time to raise finances right. in I'm not being and dismissive. Right. You would know it took him and to get he wanted to get the right organizations on board, you know, it was a lot of work for both of us.
0: And how difficult was it to find participants?
1: Yeah, your talking heads in the film, who really bare their souls. That was an interesting thing because Tristan, you know, he's gay and out and proud and he, all the people he hangs, a lot of his friends are LGBTI, but they were young. And yeah. it was like, yeah. where are we going to find the old people? Where are they? And it was like, are they hiding from us? So there was a lot of work done contacting ALGA, which is the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives VAC, Victorian AIDS Council, Val's Cafe, the Seniors Festival, Transgender Victoria, like all these organisations going to, discussing the idea of putting on this big event in a big civic space in Melbourne. And the main thing Tristan wanted to do is he didn't want them to pay because a lot of these people we have found are living, you know, below the poverty line. A little
0: hand-to-mouth kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: and part of that has been by their sexual and gender identity. They've either been abandoned by family or friends or, or they've lost jobs. I mean, life has been tough for some of these older people, well, a lot of them. So the idea was it's going to be a free event. So it was a lot of negotiating with businesses to see who'd come on board and support that event. And and then, as I said, so we, would, we heard about little groups getting together or individuals or even Catherine Barrett who wrote the report, she said, oh, you've got to go and meet Nats or you should go and meet David Morrison or, so she had met some through her research, so it was really just all of us sharing information, you know, I'd be out to dinner, and someone say, "Oh my God, I haven't you met this woman, Judith? Mm-hmm. She's a she's a lesbian shearer. She's ninety years old." It's like, oh, so it was really as simple as that. And then he and I would drive around and meet them, and talk to them, and coerce them. And then they'd put us in touch with their friends, and it just got bigger and bigger. In the end, Tristan had four hundred people at the Melbourne Town Hall. And probably, you know, 250 were over 65 years old, which wow. was so exciting. Where was Australia when you were
0: making this film in relationship to its gay population? Because um, same-sex marriage was not legal in your country.
1: Yeah, it was um, very coincidental that the actual year of the ball, which was 2000 and... What are we in now? 2007. The ball was two, October... 7th 2017 first ball and the marriage equality vote happened two weeks later it was a strange time the first two years were probably a bit more naive and innocent and um optimistic and then that final year was when the vote came into being and it was quite traumatic and devastating for the community at large and People were um, very traumatized about this. The vote happening. That was de- the- it. Was defeated. No, no, no we what got mean- it. Well, what it- do you mean by why were they traumatized? Because it brings up issues of, and, and suddenly they become, you know, the subject of dinner party discussions when they feel like. People are making decisions about, about what ally. should be as a human right, and it's and and, and it's equality. They ha- we don't have to. Why should we be voting? They should have the same rights as everybody else. It's mm. like what is wrong with right. this country? Right. We felt very um, behind the rest of the world. Okay, you know the rest of the Western world. Right, you know? that had to be qualified. Yeah.
0: Did you find that the men and women who you interviewed and who
1: appear in your film eager to talk to you? Initially, and- no, very reticent, exactly like The Tempest. Initially in The Tempest, people were very wary of this woman with a camera because, because of the nature of documentary filmmaking and funding, I often start for the first year or so working doing most of the filming. So I'm not only trying to get to know someone, I'm trying to make sure that I can hear what they're saying through my headphones. I'm trying to make sure that that I've got focus. Initially, there's these sort of technical barriers between trying to become, you know, close to someone. So it takes a long time, and that's why I probably say three years, and I say it like it's nothing, but it takes that long to make a friend, you mm-hmm. know, or get to know And trust, someone. and have the trust. So much about trust. So, yeah, these people, particularly because they have been in the closet for so long, they're guarded, and they're nervous, and they have walls up before, and they meet, and they've, probably meet a lot of people like me who want to ask questions of them. But I want to go beyond that, obviously. I want them to tell me stories that they haven't told someone else. And so, yeah, it took a long time. Well, they told you those
0: stories because they felt safe with you. Yeah. And that's pretty evident in this documentary, which is incredibly moving. You don't think that that's going to happen to you, that you feel so connected. There's this fellow, David Morrison, what is he, 90-something? He is now, yes. And he was married, had a family. And some years before, I think it was 10 years before, his wife passed away. And Mm. in the film, he says it was really tough. It was very sad. But at the same time, he had the freedom now to be who he is. Authentic. Mm. Yeah, to be Mm. authentic. You know, we take so much for granted. That's
1: a beautiful because David makes it very clear, and I think a lot of people related to this, that he comes from a time where it was expected that he got married. Mm -hmm. He did get married. He loved his wife dearly. Right. He misses her, but he he knew there was more to his life and he was too scared to come out until... He wouldn't have come out. He said, I would never have come out to hurt Margaret. Well, you see in the
0: film that as you, as you walk in a way in his shoes, you know, there's some reticence, whatever, and he's observing. And then when it's the night of the ball, he couldn't be more excited. And you're rooting him on and you feel it. Your film just brings you in as the viewer I was at that ball damn it you know (laughs) I really was how
1: was this film received it was received very well I have to say thank goodness (laughs) it was selected by the Melbourne International Film Festival to be the closing night film that that festival in Melbourne is a big deal To get the closing night slot was huge. I didn't understand it until it actually happened. We had you mean the import? Absolutely, two thousand people watching it, laughing at all the jokes, getting the film, crying, being moved, and then we had a party afterwards that the festival threw for us, which had miscellaneous and marzipan who were in the film hosting the night. And those were the drag queens. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and all the cast got up, and the audience clapped them. It was. You know, it was extraordinary, Sandy. Well, you know, when one is a certain age, uh, <laughs> yes. regardless of
0: what your sexuality is, you feel very dismissed, you mm-hmm. feel so neglected, and there's this added, <laughs> what's the opposite of bonus, this added issue of the fact that there's no family to take care of me and I'm going to go into a facility, be it assisted living or whatever, and I can't be who I am. Mm. And I'm 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 back to square one. It tears at your heart.
1: Or I have a partner, but I'm I'm in this aged care home, and a lot of the staff are from different countries and different cultures and different religious backgrounds, and I can't let my partner come and visit me because right. they will understand, they will work out what who I am or what I am. So I will. Ne- I won't let that happen. Oh God, they should have to go back to square one, yes. and it's just, it's just so wrong.
0: I so was taken by excuse the expression the people who took their clothes off to talk to you. And there's a, a gentleman who is um, transgender. whose name I forget. Who um, Michelle, Michelle, trans- Michelle. 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 Yeah. Michelle McNamara. I remember that, and that was still living with his wife. Her wife. Her wife, excuse me, her wife. I'm sorry, who's and you know, and the issue is that Bob is, is not attracted to tra- women. Attracted to women,
1: I mean, you know, it's just kind of it's so overwhelming. I mean, there's just so many levels. Michelle and Bob and I have become quite close during this process, and in some ways, they were the two that were least attracted to being in this documentary how ironic michelle was very wary of what was and private obviously because initially michelle was when i first met michelle three years ago michelle was living partly as michael and partly as michelle so she did not want to be out publicly could not at that stage could not hadn't told her work so Mm. she said i can't be in this film why do you want me in this film Mm. And then slowly but surely, we became closer. She watched what I was doing and how I was always around and we would just spend time together. And then she said, okay, let's. I, I'm prepared to do this. And then I started to get to know Barb. And Barb was like, there's no way I'm being in this film, So I'm telling you right now, this is all so complicated for me, what I'm dealing with. And I said, okay, you, I, you know, I totally get it. I said, But I said to Barb, and, you know, I don't know if she would remember this, but I said, I think the film one day will show part of the relationship and the love that you and Michelle Shout have, for each other, mm-hmm. whether you stay together or not. Right, right. In 20 years' time, this is going to be a little memory of your relationship if you let me at least have a few shots of you, because otherwise we will never know you as an audience. Nobody – and she said – Initially, she said no. So that's the sort of thing you're working with the whole time. And then, the more and more I was there, I'd say, you know, I would try and justify my reasoning. And she would, and then in the end, she said, yes, you can have a few. And you can see she has, and then she started coming to the ball. And initially, as Michelle said, I don't know where the bar will come to the ball. And she's there at the ball, she's sitting at the table, Mm. she's smiling, she's laughing. Michelle and I, you know, Michelle and I speak to each other quite regularly, and she says she believes the film has changed her life.
0: Oh, no. Kidding. She said
1: she fully transitioned through this process. So there was that, a
0: liberation for
1: her. And that the questions that I asked as a filmmaker were things that she hadn't thought about or perhaps didn't want to think about. But she said it also validated my identity. She said the retelling of one's personal stories helps you formulate sort of who you are and it makes it concrete. It makes it real. And she said, and not only that, to see the love that I have for Barb, because they love each other dearly. To see that captured, you know, she said, it's, you know, I can't even describe yeah. what that means to both of us. They are thrilled. And they've been, like, the film has screened, like, now three times in Melbourne that little Q&As are part of the festival. They're at every one. <laughs> Michelle's <laughs> loving it. And she's just brilliant. And she's, a, she's an academic. And she's articulate. And she's got a lot to say about transitioning. And it's, she's amazing.
0: What you can learn from this and what you're exposed to, it only
1: expands your world. And that's, I think, part of the reason I moved from theatre to film, is the lasting effect of a documentary. When I would put on a play, it was done, and we would never see it again. Right. And in some ways, even the ball, it was one extraordinary night. It, he is going to do it again, and has just—that's another discussion. But I captured that one night, and we can watch that in twenty years. Absolutely, that's the power of it. Yeah, it's—it yeah. it lives
0: on that's and right. on. This must give you such joy, and you must be so proud of the work that you do. Yeah. If you're not going to say it, I'll say it for you. (laughs) Thank you. And it's really uh, wonderful. Thank you so much for flying in from Australia and being a a part of this conversation. I love what I do. Yeah, I love what I do. Thanks, Sandy. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.